This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 213, brought to you in association with Smart and the enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Naveen Bindal, co-founder of Encash, E-N-K-A-S-H, one of India's largest spend management fintechs, to talk about fintech in India. We'll hear more about Encash later in the show, but for now, let's have that rarest of birds, a short and succinct introduction from me. You've all heard of fintech. I'm sure you've all heard of India. But how much do you all know about fintech in India? Listen up, and I'm sure you will know a lot more very soon. By some measures, India is already the world's third largest fintech market, and thus one we need to know about. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Naveen. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Mike, for having me here. So, you're here is is far to the east of where I am, and you can tell me and the listeners whereabouts in um, India you are. But one of the interesting things is that although you're somewhat far east of where I am today, which is slightly south of London, your time is also 30 minutes out of phase with my time, which is quite a rare thing. Most, most countries in the world are sort of an hour or so shifted one way or another from, from GMT, but for reasons I've never quite understood, India is one of those rare countries that sort of, I don't know, whatever you are, let's say five and a half or six and a half hours out of the framework. So uh, do you know why that's happened? Or have you just sort of, since you're a boy, set your watch on the time and, and that was the time? <laughs> no, well, I, I, I don't think I know the real reason, though. But what I've heard, um, you know, since I've been sort of born and brought up here in India is that, you know, there's a scientific reason where, you know, India kind of falls between the two meridians and they sort of decided to, you know, pick up the time right in between of that. And I think there's some history to it as well from our, you know, pre-independence day that, you know, India basically falls between the Bangladesh and Pakistan. And I think both of those countries actually have a time difference of about half an hour from India. So, I, I mean, those are the things that I know of. But yeah, I may not have a very exact answer for that, Mike. Yes, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I did a quick Google and a bit like you, I didn't find anything that I found that compelling other than the suggestion that it arose in 1947 when India became um, independent. And actually, talking of time and the British in India, when British ships or Dutch ships first went over there, I don't think that anybody had watches or anything like that. So it was a great problem. And there was a, there was a well-known book over here, I think Longitude or something like that, which was that... Uh, it was a great leap forward for sailors going around the world when they could work out how far east and west they were. Because working out latitude, how far north and south, is very easy. You just look at the sun and I must be quite near the equator. But working out longitude required quite accurate timepieces. So the interesting thing is that most of our ancestors as businessmen and merchants and entrepreneurs actually had no clue what the time was whatsoever. They, they'd sail around the world, they'd turn up somewhere else and the, the sun would be sort of high in the sky and they sort of think that's about midday. So it's... Um, Yes, time, at time as we orientate our entire diaries and calendars around these days, for most of our ancestors, didn't actually exist at all in the same way. I think the interesting thing for Romans was that I think the Romans divided the daylight into the same number of hours, regardless of 
whether it was winter or summer. So I think for the Roman hour in winter, certainly in, in our, the latitudes that I am here, hours were much shorter than the, the summer. So time is relative, but I think someone else worked that out about 100 years ago with a rather sort of strange hairstyle. So uh, in, just in time, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background to your career journey, Naveen, in terms of where you came from and what led you to, along with your co-founders, founding MCash? Sure, sure. I can talk a little bit about myself as well as my co-founders as well. But, you know, um, Mike, I actually started my journey about 23 years ago. Um, I started as a, as a, a developer working for a credit card company. Um, back then, credit cards were um, still a very nascent thing. Um, it was very exciting for me to sort of build technology for, for a product like credit cards. And, and that sort of, you know, created a lot of interest towards payments as a general ecosystem, right? I worked for many different companies um, that were sort of building softwares for payment technologies, including the companies like IBM. And the longest I spent my time was with a company called First Data, which is where I uh, was actually working for them in the Southeast Asian market, developing different payment systems for various bank customers that First Data processed the payments for. So in the last 20, 23 years, um, I got a lot of opportunity to work with various banks, payment processing companies, uh, money remittance companies, uh, and so on and so forth, right? I also happen to be in the fintech space for almost uh, a decade now here in India. I've seen it very closely. I've seen the evolution of how fintech has actually grown, how it has probably solved for a set of different problems. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later today. But um, essentially, that's been my background. I've done a lot of payment and payment products in my life. And very similar backgrounds uh, for my co-founders as well. They've also been associated with payment companies all their lives, individually about 20 odd years. Ah, interesting. Well, as, as my elder daughter is a developer, I think I'm particularly interested in the question about how you found changing from being a, a developer, quotes, one day to the next day being a, a, an entrepreneur a, a, and a founder. What was that particular experience like? Uh, what was it that led you to sort of change? Did you get bored of playing with computers or... Yeah, no, so I actually, um, you know, uh, right from the beginning, I, I had a lot of interest while developing softwares for payment uh, related products. I had a lot of interest in understanding the business side of it. Um, I was very keen to sort of learn the dynamics of how sort of money is made in this business. What does it take to really sort of, you know, um, grow uh, the portfolio in terms of um, the distribution and, and expansion of these business lines? The interest obviously was there right from the beginning, but, you know, I also wanted to learn a lot before I could actually jump into entrepreneurship myself. Somewhere in 2000, between 2010 and 13 is when I was actually trying to figure out what is that I can possibly do now, having almost more than a decade of hands-on experience with technology and product, I realized that, you know, it's time for me to sort of take the plunge into entrepreneurship. However, um, the entrepreneurial journey itself would have got its own challenges um, coming through. And hence, I decided to sort of work with another company, uh, which was just getting started and thereby getting like a first-hand experience of building a business from scratch, not as a founder of the company, but almost doing everything that the founder does uh, for this company, right? So that gave me a lot of hands-on experience of building a company, 
uh, including, you know, uh, building the teams, setting up the business, following all the regulatory compliances and, and all of those things, right? So that gave me a good amount of sort of experience, which is what I really needed before I could start on my own. With that experience with me, you know, with uh, sort of solve for my entrepreneurial hunger sometimes in 2018, which is when Encash uh, came into being. Yes, you know, I can quite understand that um, although it's a very small percentage of developers who become entrepreneurs, it's probably the case for almost all developers that if you stay in what used to be called IT or technology 10, 20 or more years, you become more and more senior. And if on day one you do some very minutiae job in a box like write me a square root function or add up the following two numbers and write a program for that, as time goes by, it isn't very long before you realise that a lot of your job is about trying to do something of commercial value and trying to do something in a context which is generally set by marketing and the, and the marketplace and all, all that. And therefore, naturally, you know, when you're a sort of project manager or something, for the sake of argument, half your focus is on the external world, like we're doing this thing on our website or we've got this new product. And then the other half is then managing a team of people to do what you need outside. So it kind of presents its own natural bridge. And I like your tale about learning how to be an entrepreneur by doing. And I think that the real way, I had a number of conversations recently about education in a practical sense. And to me, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about being a founder or whether you're being a Qigong instructor or whatever. Chinese are very good at this mentality. It's, it's the learn by doing thing. And this very much in the in the West, um, but also in, in India and China. India and China turn out way more science graduates every year than, than the rest of the, the world, I think. Um, but there's very much an idea of learning from books. But when it comes to being a founder and running a company, okay, books are fine, but actually, like many things in life, you learn by doing. It's the same as having children or being married. You know, you can read lots of books about it, but it's never quite the same. <laughs> okay, so look, so going on to the main course topic of fintech in India, uh, over the last 12 months, we've on the podcast started to look at geographical uh, angle to fintech. We've covered fintech in Africa, we've covered fintech in Latin America and Scandinavia. And as I mentioned in the introduction, by some measures, India is the world's third largest fintech marketplace. So it's something that would be really interesting to know about. Maybe we should start with geography because India is big enough to qualify as a a subcontinent, although I can't think of many other subcontinents, actually. People always talk about India as a subcontinent. I'm not sure what another subcontinent is. But anyway, I'm not very good at geography. So just regionally within um, India, what are the places where fintech is is really active and and which one of those are are you in? Sure. So, you know, largely the fintechs are based out of cities in India uh, that are closer to, you know, either banks or other payment processing hubs, right? Um, and for obvious reasons that, you know, they, they need to be in close contact working with uh, with various other regulated entities, um, be it banks or non-banking financial corporations. And, um, you know, logically, the, the hubs that are distributed here in India are either in cities like Mumbai, uh, New Delhi, um, or Bangalore, right? Bangalore largely because of the tech talent that is available um, in in that city. And these three regions or three cities have got predominantly most of the companies setting up their offices when they start and as they expand. A lot of companies probably start from other smaller cities as well, but as they grow, 
they sort of graduate to move into some of these big cities because of proximities to their business partners, their bank partners, or other regulated entity partners. NCash itself is currently located in uh, four different cities. But yeah, we work with banks in New Delhi and Mumbai a lot. Uh, while we still have offices and, you know, a lot of our developers and product folks are based with Bangalore, but we've got a decent sized team in Bombay as well. And I must say that actually, India is one of the countries I didn't do business in when I was a merchant banker. Uh, so I don't actually know where the kind of hub of financial services is. I mean, New York is a good example. They've got a lot of tech, obviously, on the West Coast, but all their banking is pretty much in New York. Everything's in London. The banking's in London, the tech's in London. So where is the banking hub of India? It's Mumbai and, you know, also called as Bombay. Uh, the You know, it got renamed, uh, um, you know, a lot of years ago. But um, Mumbai is, is essentially the place where most of the banks actually have their office. Also because of the proximity to the regulators, which is RBI, having their office in, in Mumbai. So hence, most office, most banks actually have uh, their presence um, in, in uh, Mumbai city. I see. Well, that's what I would have thought. And um, Bangalore is well known over here as a, as a tech hub. I mean, from before the days of fintech, when uh, offshoring started to take place and people had development teams somewhere else in the world. And I think the one that sort of um, I wasn't so aware of was that New Delhi is a, a center for um, fintech and, 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 and FS and banking and, and commerce. Yeah, I mean, New Delhi becomes a natural uh, sort of extension to both Bangalore and Mumbai in, in a way because, you know, it's also the capital for, for the country. And there's obviously a lot of work that happens there uh, with the government. And, and hence, you know, uh, some of the most sort of popular private sector banks are actually uh, based out of New Delhi, right? So in that sense, uh, fintech um, or overall the startup uh, ecosystem has grown pretty well uh, in, in that region. Interesting. Well, in, well, in which case, America is clearly a, an anomaly because I'm not sure anything commercial happens in Washington. So, OK, so if that's the geographic hubs, then in terms of the history, when were you first aware of the word um, fintech and when did it really start taking off in India? I mean, in, in the UK, Zopa formed in 2005, doing its peer-to-peer, obviously. And then a lot of the others like, oh, didn't they, Funding Circle, Rate Setter, TransferWise, were about 2010 to 2012. The London Fintech podcast started in 2014. And in 2014, you would not have seen the word fintech in any newspaper whatsoever. And so in terms of public consciousness, I think fintech really started perhaps about 2015, 2016 in the UK. So what's the sort of uh, equivalent history over there? I mean, just taking it from a starting with a personal perspective, when did you first hear the word fintech, for example? Sure. So we, we got started a little earlier than than the UK, uh, Mike. We we saw obviously, uh, you know, the whole banking and financial services landscape got, you know, um, went through a transformation post the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, just after that, you know, a lot of stuff was happening in India when it comes to digital marketplaces where e-commerce was sort of you know started and on the backs of e-commerce happening in this country obviously it required disruption in the payment space or in the fintech space in general right so we saw a whole bunch of fintechs started to sort of build um, new products that could disrupt the incumbents where banks had not built the technology for the likes of digital commerce. So really uh, around 2010 is when we saw a lot of this disruption happening in the form of, say, payment aggregators or or P2P lending in some way or the other. Payment gateways came in and started to solve for a bunch of different things. Digital marketplaces then started to grow. Um, you know, the, they started to actually process a huge amount of orders coming from uh, mobile apps from customers or or their websites. 
Um, so in 2012, we saw the real growth actually happening where um, multiple payment instruments, great checkout experiences um, sort of emerged, including but not limited to wallets, one-click checkouts, tokenization, and various other fast, faster checkout mechanisms. Between 13 and 16, uh, we saw the payment ecosystem or the overall fintech ecosystem again growing very rapidly. Uh, there were products like prepaid cards, boss aggregation platforms, UPI getting introduced, uh, a lot of lending stacks started to get built um, on the backs of alternate data that uh, got gathered to, uh, you know, because of the uh, digital marketplaces. In 2017 and 18, we saw introduction of India stack that gave rise to concepts like neo banking. India stack is what? So the India stack essentially is where the government of India built out ability for a lot of digitization when it comes to either making uh, faster money transfers or verifying the identity of, of the people who are actually doing um, these transactions, right? So for example, um, we have something called as the Aadhaar, which is equivalent of, um, let's say, the the SSN uh, ID in the US, right? So um, this basically wasn't um, existing in India before this. And just after the introduction of the Aadhaar ecosystem, people could now digitally verify who's the person who's actually making the transaction and thereabouts, you know, sort of solving for the KYC of the customer. Oh, that's interesting. Just on that one. So how does it actually work? So has the government allocated every citizen of India a number and you know if you want to find out who I don't know let's say I live in in, in India who Mike Ballerman is you ping I don't know some API in New Delhi and it says oh yeah he's this guy who lives in you know bank in Bangalore or something like that um, or is it a sort of a private sector cooperative between the various banks um, to check the KYC AML stuff and, and verify the identity so yes how does the identity piece work of the India stack? So, Mike, essentially what was done as part of Aadhaar enablement in this country was that all the citizens who were given Aadhaar, and, you know, obviously this happened over a period of time, it wasn't like easy job for them to do uh, this for everybody. But, you know, post the introduction of Aadhaar, what really they, the government did was they actually did a biometric scan of every individual with their fingerprints and um, the retina scans. That basically led to a situation where every individual was uniquely identified in the systems of the government um, stack or, you know, maintained in the central database of the government. And everyone who had to sort of verify his credentials could sort of, you know, let's say, for example, a bank wants to verify credentials of Naveen applying for, let's say, a business loan or, or a credit card. The bank would now have the ability to use the biometrics of Naveen, either through fingerprint or through the retina scan and verify whether he is really Naveen and, you know, what are the whereabouts of Naveen, what are his uh, date of birth, what is his full name and so on and so forth, right? So that actually solved for a lot of problems. Interesting. Well, just from the sort of perspective of, of knowing who your client is, it's clearly very helpful to have that system. As you know, there's quite a lot of controversy over here in Europe and quite a lot of failed politicians slash war criminals like Tony Blair keep pushing non-stop the idea that we all get ID'd over here, um, which we're very reluctant to do, not least of which because over here there's a lot of fear of the, the precedent set in China about the China social credit score, where they've, they've identified all their citizens and, you know, if you criticise the, the party or something, you suddenly are not allowed to catch a, a railway train or, or, or this kind of stuff. So 
there are these different dimensions, which is sort of technological efficiency, um, but also the sort of individual liberty. And to an extent, it's a bit of a strange conversation over here because I have a passport. Most of this country has a passport. We're a tiny island. You can't go very far. So sooner or later, people actually want to go somewhere else and you need a passport. And my passport has a unique identifying piece of information, as does my driving license. So when I've signed up for various app banks on my phone, even though we say we don't have ID cards and no national identity, I've got two documents produced by the state which have got a unique identifier and my photo on. So partly I think it's sort of just anxiety and partly sort of liberty thinking, but we kind of have our identity documents which are kind of used for AML KYC over here. So how is the narrative going over there in terms of people's worries about individual liberty and before you know it the government starts controlling you all and, and saying you can't buy things at a supermarket because you tweeted the wrong thing and, and other such dystopian things like that? Or is there not a conversation? Yeah, I think for India, Mike, the situation is slightly different, right? I think for us, the scale is just humongous. And for the government to actually get to that point where you know, um, the government starts to sort of, you know, use this data in order to sort of create a differentiation uh, amongst people as to what is accessible to whom or and, um, you know, what is accessible to a particular individual. I think that we are a bit far away from there. Um, because for us, the biggest task was to bring in all the people on this digital India stack platform as a first thing. And, you know, that itself took a really long time, because, you know, Geographically, we are, we are so vast as, as a country and getting uh, a lot of people together to do um, sort of register for, the, uh, for a service like this itself took a really long time. But what that did, though, to the fintech world or the overall banking and financial services world was that with the introduction of something like an Aadhaar, at least now there was a single ID that was sort of used by all the financial services people to sort of say that, okay, um, who is the exact person who's applying for, for this banking facility? And again, I think there are two parts to it. One is the possession of the ID itself. And the second part of it is whether, you know, are you the right person who's applying for it, right? Or is, is it like a case where Mike has got access to Naveen's Aadhaar ID and he is applying in place of Naveen, right? So, so it was important to verify whether the person who was applying is really Naveen or is it someone else who's got Naveen's ID and he's applying for on, on his behalf, right? So that is where the biometric and the retina scan actually played a big role. But yeah, I think to, to answer your question, we, we are probably a little far from that situation. I don't know how that is going to play out. But, uh, but yeah, I think um, for the banking financial services, I think it was, it was a great thing that happened. I see. And for those curious listeners, I'm just looking it up and Adhar is spelled A-A-D-H-A-A-R in case any listeners want to Google it online. And allegedly, it means base or foundation or something. What, what, is that what the word means? It's what Wikipedia says, not that Wikipedia knows everything. Yeah, no, that's right. That is, it's your uh, basis of your existence. It's, it's, that's what the word Adhar really means. Oh, I see. Right. OK, so there's, <laughs> getting back to my libertarian leanings, the basis of your existence is now in India, seen not as Brackman, but as a, a number from the government. <laughs> a change in philosophy over time. Uh, interesting. OK, so look, so you guys started very early. I think, you know, in, in terms of talking like numbers like 2010 and that, I think it was the London, America and, and India are probably at the, the forefront of this. China has caught up much more recently. Um, other areas like Latin America uh, and Africa are a little bit further behind. But one important question is to understand, uh, in terms of a region, the, the demographics of the region. So for the sake of argument, I don't know the statistics, but if you take the American population 
I don't know, let's say 95% of them have got smartphones and 95% of them have uh, enough money to be able to use it or, or 80%, you know, very large numbers. We covered uh, Nigeria last year, a very different demographic, and there's only a small percentage tending to be the sort of young, more tech crowd in, in Lagos who are the marketplace for, for digital products and this kind of thing. So just in terms of a, an overview of the demographics of India, because obviously there's a massive difference in income, income distribution, what percentage of the Indian population, you're around a billion at the moment, you can update me on that rough number, uh, what percentage of, of India's population are engaging in sort of, you know, online banking, fintechy products or whatever, 1, 10, 100%? Well, I can give you um, some of the statistics that I've actually looked at in the past, right? Um, uh, I may not have the exact percentage of people who are currently, you know, sort of um, involved or are included in the banking process itself. But, you know, just to give you a, a very high level um, number, we are almost uh, about a billion people who are now who have access to internet out of this i would say probably about half a billion people live in the rural geography of india close to about a billion people have access to smartphones and i would say about between 3 and and 400 million users are actually now making online purchases in india and i would say between 70 to 80 billion dollars of volume is sort of you know getting processed on upi which is one of the most preferred transaction method today so that's the kind of scale that we have seen, uh, and this is obviously growing really fast. Yes, so those sound like a huge numbers and a huge marketplace to me, which may well be. I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the show before. If you're, I don't know, you're a fintech in Sweden or something like that, or Finland, then you've got quite a small marketplace and you're expanding to Scandinavia, but fairly soon you've kind of saturated your market and you have to go somewhere else. If you're something like UK, you're a little bit in the middle. There's quite a marketplace in the UK, but relatively soon you need to go somewhere else. If you're in America, you don't really need to go anywhere else other than the sort of uh, America's imperial desires. But in countries like India and China, which have got a billion people, there is no real pressure, I imagine, to suddenly try and expand into the sake of argument, I don't know, smaller markets like Thailand or Myanmar or Pakistan or, or anything like that. So presumably one of the dynamics of, of, of Indian fintechs is that they do predominantly focus on India at the moment. Are many internationalising and going elsewhere? So I would say that fintechs particularly have not really uh, looked at sort of moving out of India or expanding to other geographies, primarily for the same reason, as you said, because, you know, there's so much to be solved here, right? There's, the market potential is just huge, right? Um, the other statistics that I can give you is that there are about 70 million SMEs or, or businesses in India, right? So that uh, number would actually talk about the kind of opportunity, even on the B2B side that exists for fintech today, right? And, and you know, so, so it, there's a big opportunity out here in India, and that's actually growing really, really fast. However, some of the other startups who are probably not so much around fintech have probably looked at... Um, other markets, primarily because of, you know, the the adoption of some of the um, software as a service kind of components have been fairly better in outside Indian markets, but not so much for the fintechs itself. Good. Okay, that's very interesting by way of context. So in this huge market, um, which has been around for well over a decade, and therefore has got many players, um, we use the word fintech, fintech, is of course kind of a collective noun for many types of business doing different things. I mean, over here, we have equity crowdfunding. There's not a lot of similarity between equity crowdfunding and insurance technology, for example, or payments. They're very different sort of silos within it. 
So we've only spoken so far about Indian fintech, but if we remove the word fintech and actually dived into different areas, like, oh, there's technologies enabling payments to be different or insurance to be different, or we had some P2Ps and they came and went, or we have lots of banking apps. What do you think the, the major sectors within fintech are in India that are very important to India and to Indians and that people should know about? Sure. So I think, you know, for the longest period of time, we've actually seen um, consumer payments as one of the areas which has grown really well. Um, and we've seen um, a, a lot of different unicorns that have got established in India solving for consumer payments in the last decade or so. But if you look at from here on, I think the the couple of other sectors that we see which are growing really fast within the fintech umbrella could be insurance tech, which also is called as the insure tech. Obviously, because of the um, underpenetrated sort of situation on insurance, whether we talk about individual insurances or business insurances. So that's one area which is which is highly underpenetrated and hence um, has a very big potential and is, is actually poised for a great, great growth in the coming years. The other that we see is also the reg tech, which is also called as regulatory tech. You know, obviously, with a lot of digitization, it is important that the regulatory framework that is offered by the government of India gets followed by all the other businesses. And hence, you know, it requires a very seamless experience for other businesses to be adhering to all these regulatory sort of structure or the governance structure that has been laid out. And thus, you know, a lot of companies have actually now come up in the areas of regulatory tech products that could solve, like a while ago, we were speaking about KYC, um, you know, and obviously that requires APIs for various mobile apps or websites to be able to verify their customers digitally and, and thus the regulatory tech framework becomes very important. Beyond this, I think the B2B space is growing very fast, uh, which is also one of the space where NCash uh, sort of, you know, dominates today in the market um, is solving for the B2B payments in uh, India on the backs of the growth uh, on the on the B2B commerce that is that is happening right now. So, yeah, I think those are some of the areas where we see a massive disruption happening over the next five to 10 years. Interesting. And talking of reg tech, um, briefly, what is the regulatory framework in India that surrounds fintech? So if, if I move to India tomorrow and, and I start a fintech, who is going to be regulating? Who, who do I have to be nice to and follow all their rules to actually be able to legally do business in the space? So largely, um, the the RBI, which is the Reserve Bank of India, has actually, uh, you know, come up with various guidelines and, and governance structure around how any of the fintechs should operate in conjunction with the other regulated entities like banks or, or NBFCs, right, no, uh, the non-banking financial corporations. The reg tech essentially allows a fintech to get access to, uh, you know, the data that is required for them to sort of verify certain businesses, certain individuals with whom they are doing business with. For example, if you're a, if you're a business in India and, you know, if you were to sort of a, apply for a business loan and let's assume that there is a, there's a fintech, which is sort of solving for helping you get a business loan in a seamless manner in conjunction with one of their banking partners. Um, the regulatory tech basically allows the fintech to verify your credentials, verify your existence of your business and stuff like that in a seamless manner and be able to present to the, the partner bank a very clean sort of, you know, uh, record of, of the business or a very transparent record of your business in order for you to avail that loan in a, in a very short period. 
Excellent. That all seems very clear and very well organised. So we've discussed the past. Um, you've given us a little bit of a, an overview of the present. So how do you, as a, a fintech entrepreneur in India, see the next um, three to five years uh, in India? What do you think is going to get bigger and better? What areas are going to be covered that aren't covered now? Where is it basically all going to? I think one of the biggest area that we see um, that is actually going to see massive disruption or an opportunity for people to sort of work on would be the embedded finance. What I mean by embedded finance really here is, you know, um, the consumers these days do not really want to sort of differentiate between their banking apps versus their other stuff that they do, right? For example, you know, the two largest food delivery or food tech uh, apps in India are Swiggy and Zomato. Now, the consumers who are actually ordering food on, on these app, um, mobile apps do not really want to go out of these apps to be able to perform their other functions, whether it is, you know, um, make their credit card payment or just probably, you know, make a money transfer to a friend of theirs, right? So they want an embedded finance infrastructure to be put in by by those mobile apps where they are most commonly using those applications, right? So that's an area which we see um, growing really fast, where all of these things will come together in a very embedded manner. And sort of, you know, uh, that's an area which is ready to get disrupted. The other area that we see is open banking, um, you know, with, with a lot of different companies now working together with the banks to sort of open up their APIs for others to sort of, you know, build different customer experiences on top of that is something that we see um, is again going to happen, um, whether it's for the consumer or for the businesses, uh, we see that that's an area of disruption that that is definitely going to happen. Oh, excellent. Well, that's been a very interesting overview of India and, and fintech. Time has gone very quickly and uh, you've got a lot of information at uh, your fingertips, which is very impressive. So um, before we hear uh, more specifically about uh, Inkash, I'd like to thank all of you listeners out there, in particular my listeners in India and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Naveen, you've been extremely kind uh, and a, a very good guest in that when you spoke about the main course topic, you spoke about the main course topic, but as a result of which, the listeners haven't heard very much, if anything at all, really, about Encash. Um, so maybe you'd kindly like to tell the listeners out there what it is precisely you do, what your products and services are, and in particular, what you need more of to be even bigger and better tomorrow than you are today. So thank you, Mike. Um, so we, we are the largest spend management platform in India today. Um, and as part of that, what we're really solving for is um, we've built out a platform for the CFO's office. CFOs have been struggling to automate a lot of work that they and their teams do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it is related to their accounts payable, whether it's related to accounts receivables, something as simple as expense management, or just decentralizing their purchase of software or marketing spends through credit cards. Um, we built a platform that brings all of these pieces together in order to solve for the challenge of the CFO, where today he's actually basically using multiple fragmented softwares uh, to do some of these activities or sometimes even doing these things manually. And cash solves for all of these things 
and brings these fragmented pieces together and basically automating them in order to make the life of the CFOs of various companies a lot more easy and simpler and thereby allowing them to focus more on strategizing their business rather than doing more rudimentary stuff on a day-to-day basis. In terms of the scale of your company today, what kind of numbers of employees do you have or what kind of volumes of payments per annum to give people a feel of how large you are? Sure. So we've we've got an employee strength of about 150 people as as we speak today. We're we are actually quite honestly very very lean, and we like to stay like that. But we've got a very high performance team, um, and these are people that have been experts of their uh, fields right, and have been sort of recruited after a, a lot of um, you know hard work by our HR teams. As a business today, we process close to about between three and a half to four billion dollars annually. It's been four years of our business in existence now. We've got about close to about eight, eight to 9,000 businesses on our platform who use our platform on a daily basis to do different things. So that's, that's uh, this kind of scale that we have today. Yes, that seems quite large to me. And in terms of what you need tomorrow to be even bigger and better than, than you are today, apart from obviously more businesses on your platform, are there any particular things you're looking for, any directions of growth in case a listener out there happens to have what you need? We are obviously looking to sort of, um, um, you know, for at least some of our products, but may not be for everything else, but for some of our products, we are also looking to build uh, sort of partnerships with people in other geographies, because we believe that something that, we, uh, you know, a few modules of what we've built can easily solve for challenges that exist in other markets as well. While we may not really be able to sort of serve those markets ourselves, but we're looking for partnerships where, you know, people can sort of make sort of use of what we've done here, all the good work, all the great products that we've built can possibly uh, sort of, you know, work in those markets as well. And we would like to distribute them through some of our partners in those geographies. Oh, excellent. Well, it's been a a wonderful tour d'horizon of the Indian uh, fintech scene. I I think my main takeaway is that I hadn't appreciated that India was one of the small handful of global leaders in fintech 10-15 years ago. Most of the world is now catching up on fintech, but you've clearly been pioneering over there uh, and you've clearly got some unique a- uh, aspects such as this uh, India stack, which uh, have really accelerated the implementation of fintech. And I wish you and Encash every success in the future. And in case any listeners out there have exactly what you need. It is Encash with a K-E-N-K-A-S-H. And I'm sure Naveen Bindal, B-I-N-D-A-L, would be very pleased to hear if you have exactly what he and they need for being bigger and better tomorrow. So thank you very much, that Naveen, and I wish you and Encash every success in the future. Thank you so much, Mike. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts, in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
Watch the fire light. 